The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report and Finance Presenter on ABC News and also columnist for the New Daily. And we are the Money Cafe. Cafe. Now, um, but we're not in the cafe, so that's why we're a bit out of sync there. We're, <laughs> yes. uh, we're on, uh, on Zencaster because Greg's crook, got a flu, so we didn't want to get it off him. Indeed. Well, that's fair enough. So you've been listening to the jo- uh, Jobs and Skills Summit this morning, James. What's it? What's been going on? Oh well, Alan, it's um, you know all the good and great are in the room, and uh, the, the Prime Minister and the Treasurer said a few sort of encouraging things, a bit of cheerleading to start, um, basically telling the pupils to uh, make sure they get their heads together and realise how important this is, uh, and then it was over to Danielle Wood from the Grattan Institute who gave her a really good speech, I must say, on the productivity um, challenge. And she did point out that productivity wasn't just a niche niche subject that AFR journalists are interested in, but actually something really important. So, um, and and yes, there was a fair bit of defining the problem, I guess. Uh, You know, our our education system isn't delivering what it needs to. We, We don't have enough diversity in our workforce. Um, Competition isn't high enough. But, um, yeah, it was done in a really smart, sort of clever way, which um, I think got the got the thing off to a reasonably good start. It's all so, well-intentioned. It sounds like she was a bit negative about, about can, we, we can and must do better. Yes, we can and must do better. Um, that, that, that's true. Uh, I mean, I, I think she sort of um, made the point that uh, – a nicely made point that if uh, our female workforce participation was iron ore in the ground, we'd be falling over ourselves to give subsidies to make sure we extracted it. Um, and so that's the, that's perhaps the attitude we'd need to take to some of these problems, which, uh, yeah, I guess that's fair enough. Um, reasonable way of looking at it. Yeah, well, it was pretty uh, a pretty big deal for Danielle Wood to lead off the, the summit. Yeah, I mean, she she's a great. She, 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 I've got to say, she was a great speaker, and you know, it wasn't sort of wasn't a lecture. It was it was a bit of a rallying call. I thought it was really well done. So good on it. Yeah. So also, what are you expecting to see out of the summit? Oh, not much. <laughs> um, I've been saying this week. It does remind me of there was a great episode of that great series, Hollow Men, which was set in Canberra, and I remember they went to an international summit. And two weeks before they, uh, they they went to the summit, that they handed around the communique that would be announced after it. And the question was sort of asked, well, why are we going to the summit? I, I think it's a bit like that. I mean, we're starting to see some of the deals announced, that the Prime Minister announced another 100,000 TAFE uh, places this morning at a cost of billion dollars in, in partnership with the states. And I think we'll see some of these. We've seen some deals, you know, announced beforehand, uh, you know, um, multi-business bargaining uh, at a small business level, and I think that's that's the sort of thing we'll see announced. Yes, yeah, so I've been reading the Financial Review this morning, and there's uh, plenty of um, 
deal's being announced, deal's being done. BCA and the ACTU have apparently done a deal on something or other, but they haven't done a deal on um, collective bargaining or multi-employer bargaining. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that's the question. Can we get to a deal on on, on stuff like that? You know, yeah, I, I'm not sure. The, the, the format does appear to be sort of um, speeches and then followed by a discussion. There's a lot on the agenda. So I'm just not sure entirely like at what point the deals get thrashed out. I, I guess in the breaks and at dinner and in rooms tonight away from the action. But um, yeah, well, yeah, as you we'll, said, we'll as you also say, the deals have been done beforehand. They're all yes. been, yeah. well, been having roundtables and discussions, yeah. which is fair enough. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in some ways, this is the sort of sh- the, the showpiece of, of a lot of work that's gone into it before. But, um, yeah, so it, it'll be interesting to see what long-term benefits we get. I mean, talking to CEOs over reporting season, th- their view was that um, increasing migration would be a bit of a help in the in the short term, but migration's not going to flood back. Um, every country in the world is looking for migrants at the moment, and, and so migrants have got a lot of choice, and Australia might not be their first choice given how quick, we, given how far away we are, how much it costs to get here, and the fact that we were, were quite strict with COVID border closures, there will be some migrants who go, well, I just don't want to take the risk of getting stuck. Um, so, you know, the, the, they'll need, migration will help, but it won't be a, an instant silver bullet fix. So we're going to need to see some of these other longer-term fixes like TAFE places and more childcare and that sort of thing. So that will they're all difficult as well because... A lot of these fixes, to my mind, that are being suggested require people, and that's the one thing we don't have. You know, it's great to say, "Well, here's another X billion for childcare," but who's going to? Where are we going to find the childcare workers to staff those places? So it, it is a bit of a vicious cycle that's going to take a little while to break out of. Yeah, I was at a restaurant last night, and the bloke said that um, uh, he's having to close half the restaurant. He can't. He can only open half the restaurant. Now these days, because you can't get enough staff. Yeah, although I've heard from restaurateurs saying similar things, but the flip side is they're as profitable as they were because they've put their prices up and they're containing their um, costs. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think this is the economy that we're going to have for a a, a fair while. Hmm. I don't think this is fixed in a year, frankly. Yeah, well, no, no, that's right. I, mean, well, I think I think inflation's just the the drumbeat we've got. I, I, I don't see it fading rapidly. I, I know you're keen to talk about interest rates, but I, I think this is why you're seeing the futures market say that four percent four percent interest rates might be needed because there's no sign from earnings season or the data that we're seeing come through that the consumer is. Um, being stopped by higher rates at the moment. No, not yet. That's for sure. And um, yeah, the, the, as you say, the futures market's uh, putting three point nine percent as the terminal rate. It was four. It's kind of up from three point four. I mean, uh, uh, I had Gareth Ed on uh, Talking Finance this week, and he reckons that if interest rates get to four percent, there'll be a shocking recession. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I I think that's right. I think that if interest rates get to three and a half, four percent, the the economy's in big trouble. 
Yeah, I, I think you're right. But, I mean, th- as you look at it now, it's hard to say that 3% is going to be enough to take the heat out. And and the problem is that, you know, the costs of inflation are paid by the by, by the poorest people in society. They're the ones who've, whose food bill as a proportion of their total income goes highest and their fuel bill, you know, this is what we're seeing in Britain and parts of Europe at the moment. Like the, the costs of letting inflation get away are ginormous. Um, yes. So well, they've certainly they've certainly decided not to let it get away. Yeah. So this is the balance. I mean, how hard do they go? There is. I mean, and I'm sure Gareth Ed would have spoken to this. This is a CBA view that the fact that we have a lot of housing debt and variable mortgage rates hopefully means that the um, impact of interest rates, higher rates, is felt sooner. Um, But I think CBA's thinking on that has been challenged by the fact that um, rates have moved, you know, up more sharply than they have in generations and we're still not slowing the economy. We can't even really see the the, the sort of hairline cracks that you'd like to see. There's, There's a bit in consumer spending. Uh, sorry, consumer sentiment, but it's not flowing through to consumer spending. But there's always a lag. There is. There is, yeah, for it'll, sure. It'll I mean, on. yeah, but, uh, yeah, it, at the moment it's a very – it's it when, when the penny drops and when the consumer pulls their sort of collective head in and stops spending is very hard to predict. So, yeah, I mean, what the RBA is getting in retail sales data out a couple of days ago and, and in jobs data – sort of forces their hand to some extent, I think. Hey, James, tell me about the reporting season. You had a piece the other day that say, says there's five things you learnt from it. <laughs> what, what, what are the five things? Well, I think the first thing is is that uh, the economy is in pretty reasonable shape and it's been more resilient than we expected. The second thing is that companies have pushed through higher prices with very little resistance and they think they can keep doing it. Now, I, I wonder if there's a margin crunch coming because demand will slow as rates bite and the fact that we've got such low in un- unemployment will mean that costs just keep pushing up. Wages will just keep pushing up, which will crimp margins eventually. So I think that's that's point two. Um, point three, uh, be careful of the index. I think reporting season's shown that there's you know, we talk about the two-speed economy. It's more like a 22-speed economy with all the different sectors moving at very different speeds. You know, building products, very different to tech, very different to banking, very different to manufacturing. Um, so be aware of sort of just buying the index. It might be a time, and, and, you know, this is the fund manager line, but it might be a time when you need to get a bit more active. Um, I think... You know, think about the CEO who's running the, the, the business that you're in. It's interesting that the CEOs that get caught up in sort of tactics of thinking about how they're going to fight through the next year versus the CEOs who are thinking five, ten years in advance, even in a very um, uncertain world. Like, you know, someone like Paul Perot from CSL, he couldn't really care what's happening this year. You know, the, the plans for this year were set three years ago and, Right now, he's thinking about 2028 and, you know, not every business is CSL, but uh, that's a different way of thinking about the world. And then I think the last point comes back to the the Jobs and Skills Summit. Labor is the dominant issue uh, for CEOs. So 
there's going to be two ways that hits earnings. The first is lost revenue, like the example of your restaurateur can only open half the restaurant. So he's missing the other half of the revenue he might have ordinarily got. And the other way is is costs. The, the, you know, low unemployment's held up as a signal of the resilience of the Australian economy, and that should help us. And that's true, but that's not great for companies because you've got demand coming off, prices increases will be hard to harder to push through. And at the same time, you've got labour wages rising, which will squeeze margins. So I think that's the big thing to watch over the next six months particularly. And you've also been running about M&A sparking back up. Now, um, I'm so sick of these indicative, non-binding, unsolicited, <laughs> conditional proposals instead of takeover offers. I mean, is that what we're all just going to have to get used to now, that that's all we're ever going to get, or companies are ever going to get, just those kind of things? I I think yes is the answer. I can't remember the last bid that wasn't an indicative, non-binding, unsolicited, conditional proposal. Um, yeah, you know, this is this is the this is the way of it now. Companies are companies are approached with sort of a uh, tire kicking offer. I guess is the best. Yeah, well, way I don't understand how they get away with it. Why? Why does? I mean, I just don't think the ASIC and them should let it, should, should allow this. Yeah. Um, it's a tough one because you wouldn't make a bid without due diligence. Uh, how do you get due diligence? Well, you have to have some talks beforehand. Um, how do you get talks? Well, you have to show that you're interested in some way. How do you show you're interested in some way? Through a you put an offer on the table and say, well, this is what we might be willing to bid, um, you know, were a whole bunch of things to happen. So, yeah. I just I think, mean, but I reckon this due diligence stuff, um, it, it puts, it means that the bidder is in an information advantage to the vendors, the, the shareholders, because the shareholders have only got public information, right, and the the, the bidder is saying I will only make a bid if I get non-public information, and I, you know, I just think that you've got yeah. this imbalance uh, of information. But but which- we are we are seeing the targets push back on that, and they're saying, okay, well, we've got your non-binding offer. It's not it's not high enough to get you due diligence. It's not high, high enough to get you a peek under the under the the bonnet. So we need a higher non-binding offer. And so we are seeing, you know, these negotiations, this back and forth. Often yeah, but I'm just saying, I, I just, why can't these bidders just make an offer on, on based on public information? Well, it's not as if there's, firstly, they're, the information's audited. They know it's right. Um, and what, do they, what do they need to find out in due diligence that they don't know, that they don't find out from public information? Well, I guess it's the vibe of the thing, Alan. Like, you, you could have... Um, you know, you go to buy a Toyota Corolla, you've got the make, the model, the year, and a readout from the, from the speeder. You want to drive the thing, don't you? Oh, yeah, but, you know, I mean, it's a slightly different situation. Isn't it, it is. In that, it, it is. You know, the vendors what... of this of this product, this thing, the vendors of the company um, don't have the same information that the bidder has. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good question. I, 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 I can see I'm, you know, barking up a, 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 the wrong tree, or at least it's not going to get anywhere. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I, I think the non-binding offer is the way of things now. So, um, 
yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the answer is, but I do understand where you're going from. It it does sort of seem to uh, prolong the mating dance in a way. Yeah. No, I reckon it's terrible. Anyway, let's move on to questions, shall we? Yeah, absolutely. Shall I start? Yeah, go on. Uh, Di says she enjoys the show and the byplay between the presenters, though I do agree some better gender representation is appropriate in this day and age. That's a fair point, Di. Um, I'll yes. leave that in the boss's hands here. Well, we did. Um, we talked about this with Stephen Main and agreed that uh, maybe we need to have another presenter. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, Di asks, what is the reasoning behind some companies paying fully frank dividends in US dollars? Well, um, a lot of companies just report in US dollars, like BHP reports in US dollars, but the reason that it can pay frank dividends is because it's coming out of Australian profits where the, the profit, the uh, Australian tax has been paid. So it doesn't matter what currency it is. I presume they're, they're paying Australian dollars to the tax office, not US dollars, and the dividends that end up in your bank account are Australian dollars, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they so, are converted. They're, they're just keeping it all in the same currency because they're reporting all their results in that currency. Yeah. So they're not paying fully frank dividends in US dollars. They're just reporting it or announcing it in US dollars, but they'll pay it in Australian dollars. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Hmm. And they'll convert it. Marianne says, I've got shares in Maca, M-A-C-A, ASX code MLD, but the company is now subject to a takeover bid by Tease. Tease are offering a dollar and two point five cents per share, and the Amaca board supports this. I think this is this is a bit of an old question because the offer now has been increased to a dollar and seven and a half. It has, yep. Um, so I'm Marianne saying, what's going on? Why would the Amaca board support a price that's less than the current market price? Well, the market price went above the Tease offer because another another bidder entered the fray, which was NRW. Um, they've now pulled out because Tease has increased its offer to a dollar seven and a half, and the share price is, I think, a dollar seven. So it's just under the offer price now, and I reckon everyone's decided that that's it. It's over. The auction's finished. I think that's right. Uh, just looking at the quote now, it finished yesterday at a dollar six and a half. So you're enjoying a, a one cent premium there. Um, and, and, yeah, this does look pretty much done now. Yeah. Okay, your turn. Elmer asks, what do you think of death taxes? Or with this talk about super retirement, what about whatever super is left goes to the government? Not so much a tax, but a contribution for the good of the nation. Hope your coffee is hot. Well, I'm on the waters, but uh, that's a big know. idea, um, oh. Alan. That would be, they'd be riding in the streets, do you think? Well, it sounds like a 100% death tax to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we'll have we'll have the lot thanks very much i don't think that's going to fly no um, it, but the, i but i do the, think that there should be death taxes or at least an, inter- an in- inheritance tax i can't see why we don't have that yeah and i think the, the finn had a story this week with a very high proportion of super um beneficiaries dying with their nest egg completely intact which is sort of not the point of super i didn't think uh, no, 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 that's right. He's meant to live on it. Um, maybe, the, maybe they're living on the interest, but um, he meant to use it in your retirement. Yes, indeed. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm all in favour of in, in inheritance tax because um, it's paid by the inheritors and I'll be dead, so that's good. <laughs> yes, yes, fair enough. <laughs> Susan says, 
I'm one of your long-term, long-term female listeners and I'm answering the call to ask a question. Um, I'd like to know about the significance of outstanding shares for a company. Is the concept of outstanding shares, uh, does that have the same meaning as shares on issue? Are all of the shares on issue actually owned by shareholders? Can an Australian company hold on to some shares and not offer them on the market? Um, it is the same as shares on issue, outstanding shares, yep. um, and it's basically used uh, as opposed to flo- uh, the float, which is the shares that are actively traded. If there's a bunch of shares owned, say, by a um, founder shareholder who sort of still owns 30% of the business, um, they're part of the outstanding shares, but they're not part of the float. Um, any, you got anything to add to that? No, uh, that, that's right. No, Susan's bang on. It, it's the same as shares on issue. It, it's just a a, a, a way of a, a different terminology. One of these annoying finance things where we manage to use have three ways of saying the same thing. I don't think they can hang on to shares and not issue them, can they? I mean, have they got? Uh, is there a, an unissued shares account? The, um, the, the only time I, I think they could temporarily do that, Alan, is when they're doing a capital raising um, and, you know, they would hold the shares before they're distributed. But a bit, it's very, you know, the, the effect is the same. The, 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 the company can't hold its own shares and, and hold them back from the market. Yep. Okay, Cheryl asks, my daughter, when she was six, decided that she liked the idea of owning a bit of a company. She was a very clever cookie. We initially bought NAB shares, took the dividend, and that was that. I wasn't educated in share trading, and not claiming to be now, but I'm listening to the podcasts and reading books to get a better handle on things. I read the Barefoot Investor, and we traded in the NAB shares and bought traded in the NAB shares and bought 120 AFIC shares nominated for the DRP. That's the Dividend Reinvestment Program. Whether that was a good thing or not, I have no idea. Quick question: A dividend is paid, and it's not the exact number. Is not the exact nu- amount of funds to buy or receive an exact number of shares. What happens to the leftover funds? Do you know? Well, I, I believe you get a when you're in the the DRP, the Dividend Reinvestment Program. Effectively, an account is made for you, um, such that you uh, the leftover funds that you know the, the remainder from buying X number of shares with your dividends is sort of stored up for you so it can be used next year or um, the, the next time a dividend is paid. Exactly right. That's what happens, yeah. Yeah, so the company sort of looks after you once you go in that DRP and... Um, yeah, the money's, just, the money's just put aside for you for next yeah. time. Yeah. And so hopefully next time you'll it'll all work itself out, but if mm. it doesn't, you, you, you're looked after. Nemail says, a few vocal people, including yourself, are against the incoming Stage 3 tax cuts. In twenty four twenty five, the argument is about saving savings can then be redirected to aged care, health, etc., which mostly benefits baby boomers. Mm. Oh, dreaded baby boomers! This seems to be another propaganda by baby boomers to live off another generation. They had free education, including university, uh, funded by the previous generation. Higher asset prices, lower costs by globalization and deregulation. They had everything going their way of life to repel the states. To repeal the Stage 3 tax cuts is a new legislation and needs to be introduced. Instead, don't you think it's much fairer by introducing some some tax to tax-free retirement super to fund those services instead of that those services be funded by the same cohort? Oh, yeah. What do you reckon? Well, yeah, I mean, 
We've had a series of stories in the fin about some of the extraordinary super balances that people have. There's someone with $40 million in super um, and, and the tax benefits from that, that taxpayers are, you know, what it's costing taxpayers to help that person out. I mean, there, there does need to be some tweaks to the to how much you can have in super and some of these super tax brackets, don't you think, Alan? Well, yeah, I mean, Costello brought in this thing of, you know, if you're over 60, I think I think it was that, um, you know, it, it, what you get out of super is tax-free. I just think, um, you know, that could probably change. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it won't change under this government and this government will not repeal the t- Stage 3 tax cut. So, Nemo, I don't think you have to worry. Yeah, no, I, I think you're okay there, Neymar. I mean, I mean, there is that point about super that, you know, it's a long-term thing and you don't want the rules to be changing. It, it's a it's a funny one. Uh, John says, the app and stock price has been on a wild ride. Would be interested to hear what you think of the company and their latest results. Um, Did you write not about over, it? Not, not much, John. Um, this is general advice, of course, but uh, Appen's a – a, a strange little company. For those who don't know, it, it, it goes through and sorts data for big tech companies like Facebook is one of its biggest clients, and it, tr- it, it, it sorts and labels data so that that data can be used in artificial intelligence that these companies have. So it's not quite selling the picks and shovels in a gold rush. It's more sorting through the rocks. Um, which is not a great place to be in at the moment because the the tech companies are under a lot of pressure. They're suddenly starting to cut back on their um, spending on AI and reducing what they pay Appen. So Appen's sort of in this difficult position where it's quite reliant on what, what happens to its customers and, and the, um, the, the ebbs and flows of their businesses. So it's had a takeover offer in the last year that, that sort of fell apart. Um, I, I think it's uh, – until we see a stabilisation in the world of technology, I think Appen's going to be – the wild ride will continue. I don't know what you reckon, Alan. Oh, I, I think it might not be that wild. It'll just stay, <laughs> it'll just stay <laughs> where it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a uh, good point. It's not – I agree with you. It's not that impressive a company and um, – uh, the wild ride has basically been that the share price went up a lot and then it went down a lot. Mm. Yeah, and um, it's, it's, it's um, it, it'll be a, uh, I think it'll be a slow recovery from here. Yeah, I agree. Jenny says, "Can you please explain what is behind a string of very low volume uh, course of sales within a day's trading of, for a particular share, all at the asking price?" The example I'm looking at today, there was approximately 15 contiguous separate trades over about an hour. Each trade was four shares. But all executed at the at the asking price. If you if your answer is it's to do with computer generated sales, what's the point? Well, it definitely is to do with computer generated sales. That's right. It's computer trading. Uh, AI computers are doing the trading. As to what's the point, I've got no idea. What do you think? What do you know? Yeah, what, what it the seems, point of it is. It seems pretty odd. I mean, four shares in volume. Well, well, they're kind of manipulating the price in a way. I mean, or bolstering it, or I don't know. I mean, yeah. Jenny's point is that they're executed at the asking price. They're not actually pushing it up or down. So, yes, yeah. I, 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 I guess this is 
I don't know. I was going to say, I guess it's someone trying to build a position, but <laughs> it's no, hard no, to no. imagine There's building a position any more slowly than that, is it? No, computers often trade one share um, because that's what they can get away at that price. And, you know, they just sort of do it. It's not something a human being would do, but computers yeah. just don't really um, distinguish. So, yeah, I mean, uh, they haven't, computers often just have an order to fill um, and they sometimes do it at one share or one off or four shares at a time. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I guess, uh, Jenny, yeah, it, it's hard to explain, but play your own game and don't worry too much about what those weird computers are doing. Yeah. Let's move on. We've got a couple more questions. We're going to need to. Okay. Alex, uh, this one's for you, Alan. I read your, uh, Alex says, I read your new daily piece on Evan Thornley's plan to get super funds into housing and was interested on the in the bit on Longview, but I don't quite get it. Presumably, everyone who signs up to this program will also get themselves a mortgage through a traditional lender. Won't the extra deposit they get from Longview simply reduce the amount they can borrow elsewhere, leaving them in the same position as someone who doesn't use Longview? Also, I note Longview's claim that you don't have to pay them anything unless you want to buy them out or sell. How could they guarantee that they won't go bust and be forced to sell part of my house? What will they consider a fair price for the portion of my house that they own? A few too many unknowns for me. Okay, so for those who haven't read the piece, Evan, um, uh, who uh, started a business called Look Smart, sold it, mate, got rich, uh, got involved with a electric vehicle business called Better Place, which went broke, um, uh, joined, went into Victorian Parliament. Anyway, he's uh, proposing now to um, set up funds that will invest in residential property because he thinks it's an asset class that's underutilised by institutions and um, – high net worth people and um, family offices and so on. Um, he's got two ideas. One is a fund that will invest directly in houses, just a straight-out real estate investment trust, and the other is what he calls shared equity, where they contribute up to 30% of the deposit in return for a commitment from the buyer um, that they will pay 30% of the capital gain. Um, now, the thing, Alec, to note is that um, – that shared equity scheme does not involve Evan Thornley's business, which is called Longview, owning part of the house. The house is entirely owned by the uh, the person who, who bought it. All that um, Longview is going to do is provide some of the equity in return for a contract with the uh, with the buyer um, that they will share the capital gain. So, um, uh, yeah, so it it isn't. Um, it isn't another loan, it's equity, it's uh, extra deposit. So it just basically helps people who don't have access to the bank of mum and dad, say migrants and so on, uh, who can't get some help with the deposit from their parents, um, they get help from the deposit from Longview, from uh, Evans' company, and you know the, the cost of that is that they have to share the capital gain. But... Um, uh, and as for you know, and the person who buys the house has complete control of it. They don't. Uh, Longview doesn't tell them when to sell. They just they just share the capital gain when they do sell. If Longview goes broke, um, well, it'll depend. I doubt. Th- I haven't seen the contract, but I doubt that it's got a provision in the contract that says if Longview goes into liquidation, the liquidator gets to force the sale of the house. I don't think that's the. I don't absolutely. Do not think that was what is what will happen. But as I say, I didn't actually ask Evan that specific question. Um, so, 
Next question is from Saul. Staggered to hear Brad, Brad Banducci say that our supermarket margins are improving. As an employee at a large supplier, I can tell you this is absolutely not the case. Woolworths have gone over and above supplier recommended retail price in a blatant margin grab exercise. This results in lower volumes being produced at Aussie factories and customers paying more for goods. Is it time to revisit the powers of the Australian Food and Grocery Council or perhaps give more powers to the ACCC in order to protect consumers? So what do you reckon? Did you did you talk to Brad Banducci? I did speak to Brad and I did ask him about uh, wh- whether um, the fact that his margins improved was sending a message and, and he, as Saul said, s- said it was mainly due to mix and um, uh, fall- falling tobacco sales, Falling meat sales, so uh, it's a bit of a he said she said here. The supplier employee says that's rubbish. Yeah, well, look, I mean, hard to say. The the one thing I would say is within Woolies, there is a history. There is a history, and and they're very aware of this. Of so, this idea of over earning that they. a few years back, about five years back, they, they, they pushed their margins too high. They dropped their customer service levels and it basically forced the company into a major restructure. So uh, my sense is that they are going to be very careful with margins um, and they'll be avoiding blatant margin grab exercises, but I certainly respect Saul's view. And, and yes, I mean, th- this is where the... Food and Grocery Council and the ACCC need to keep a very close eye on this. The, the negotiations between suppliers and the supermarkets are pretty fraught at the moment, pretty tense. There's five times more suppliers asking for price hikes than there usually is. Um, so th- this is going to be a big issue for the next uh, 12 months or so. So, yeah, I'm sure the ACCC and the Food and Grocery Council are going to be receiving plenty of correspondence. We'll have to leave it there for this week. Uh, any other questions, we'll hold over till next time. So um, uh, those who've missed out this week with their questions, uh, please tune in next week and you'll you'll hear them answered. Um, so thanks for listening, everyone, to today's episode of Money Cafe. Stephen Maynard will be back next week. So if you've got questions of him or me, send in, your, send in the question to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Thanks for joining us this morning again, James. Uh, remotely. I hope to see you back in the cafe in two weeks' time. That'd be great, Alan. I'll uh, look forward to a delicious hot chocolate with you. <laughs> Until then, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. Talk to you soon. 